Well, good morning. Wonderful to see you. Uh, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. And we have made our way as far as verse 36. We're going to conclude the chapter this morning as we continue to make our way through the Gospel of Luke here on Sunday mornings in a message entitled, To Know Forgiveness. Let's begin verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's home and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who this or who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, and say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, of whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I have entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace." As a believer in Jesus Christ, to know the forgiveness of God is one of the most significant understandings we can carry with us in our Christian faith. Unfortunately, we uh, often equate the forgiveness of God equal to that of the forgiveness of individuals towards us. And as A.W. Tozer rightly said, I'll read this to you because I think he worded this so eloquently. He said, human forgiveness is not always like that of God's. When a person makes a mistake and has to be forgiven, the shadow may hang over him or her because it is hard for other people to forget. But when God forgives, he begins the new page right there and then, and then the devil runs up and says, what about that person's past? And God replies, what past? There is no past. What started out fresh when he came to me, and I will forgive him. 
with God. Isaiah 43.25 clearly tells us that God, when He blots out our sins, He remembers them no more. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 103.12, and please write these verses down, Isaiah 43.25 and Psalm 103.12, tells us that He casts our transgressions as far from the east as from the west, the north is from the south. Which, interestingly enough, if you look at it in a form of a diagram, creates a cross. The forgiveness of God is one of those unique aspects of the Christian faith. We're not, where God not only forgives our sins, pardons us completely, and remembers them no more. Yet today, I don't know if we value that as highly as we once did as Christians. Today, we often believe that we are actually better than we actually are before God. We have a culture and a society around us that has often done everything it has possibly can to lessen the degree of guilt that any wrongdoing or wrong action would entail or imply upon a person's life. Instead of an individual taking personal responsibility for their sin, we are often there have reclassified the wrongdoing as them being simply a victim. Or that they have a sickness or a disease that they are personally not responsible for, when in actuality the Bible clearly articulates that what has occurred in the person's life is sin against God. And as a result, we therefore don't seem to have as great appreciation for the forgiveness of God because often we don't believe that we are as bad as God sees us and knows us to be. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Bible clearly stated that our good works were like filthy rags before Him. That there was nothing that an individual could do to merit the salvation that God was going to provide uh, by grace through faith in and through the person of Jesus Christ. The word dirty rags there is one of the most uh, filthy uh, terms that could be used uh, in that culture. Some have it uh, as used toilet paper. Some has it as used menstrual clothing. And I don't say that to just simply be gross or disgusting, but to truly uh, share with you the impact of the language that is used within the Old Testament concerning the good works of an individual before God. The reason we have diminished our sin before God and we have no longer uh, uh, considered as serious as it really is, is because we no longer use Jesus as our standard for morality. We compare ourselves to individuals around us, and we will selectively choose individuals who are worse than we are to make ourselves look better in our own eyes, and therefore diminishing and desensitizing our understanding of how serious our sin is before God. But the lady that we meet today knew the seriousness of her sin before God. She knew because the cultural aspects of that society classified her as a sinner. Many Greek scholars believe that the term used here in the Greek would indicate that she was a prostitute. Now, this is not the same occurrence of Mary of Bethany washing, uh, anointing Jesus with oil on his head and wiping it uh, with her hair and so forth, 
uh, that we find in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12, uh, due to the fact that the differences between this occasion and that one are so significant and great that I agree with those who would say that this is a separate occurrence altogether. Though Simon is the name of the individual who is classified a Pharisee here in chapter 7, in the other accounts it's Simon, which is a very common name. It's John in our culture. Uh, It's a very common name in the Jewish culture to be called Simon. And so therefore that shouldn't throw us. But it does state that in the other occurrences that he was a leper and therefore he could not be a Pharisee if he was a leper. So again, I agree with those um, who, who state that this is a separate occurrence that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. The other occasion of Mary uh, from Bethany seemed to draw out the fact that Judas was concerned about the oil that she used to anoint his head, and that oil could have been saved and the money could have been uh, obtained for that oil to give to the poor. But here is a moment of adoration where Jesus now begins his public ministry and once again declares that an individual's sin has been forgiven them. And of course, in the hearing of the Pharisees, this was something that only God could do. And therefore, Jesus was equating himself with God. Again, here at Calvary, we believe that Jesus Christ was not only a man, but he was 100% God himself, the second person of the Trinity. And as a result, we believe that he gave many examples of his deity throughout the Gospels, and here is one of those occasions. But let us take a look at our text this morning together, because to me, it is one of the most fascinating texts, and it also has in it one of my personal life verses that I'd like to share with you this morning. We begin by Jesus being invited to Simon the Pharisee's home to share a meal with them. Now, Luke undoubtedly uses this for the reader Theophilus to contrast the fact that Jesus, who was invited to eat with the tax collectors and the sinners, was also willing to go and eat with the religious Pharisees who were diametrically opposed to almost everything that Jesus stood for in his personal life and ministry. Jesus took these opportunities to uh, share the gospel, to show his true identity and such, to allow people to understand who he is and what his mission is, and yet often that was missed within the context of the gathering. Jesus here, eating with the Pharisees, undoubtedly were in one of the rooms of the Pharisees' homes which allowed for citizens of the city, which I believe were still in Capernaum at this time, to come and to listen to the conversation that is taking place among the men at the table as each individual didn't sit at the table like we would be accustomed to sitting at a dining room table, that they laid next to the table on reclining chairs with their head at the, head at the table and their feet from the table. And as they were around the table, the individuals would listen to the conversation, and undoubtedly this woman was one who was listening in the presence of the Pharisees and Jesus. And so as he, we begin here in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house 
and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. This was a very specific ointment that she brought. By classifying it, and Luke grammatically uses very detailed terms to allow Theophilus, his recipient of this letter, to truly uh, picture in his mind's eye all that is taking place. This alabaster flask was a small flask, and the body of it was about yay big, but then it had a very long neck. And after the ointment was placed within the flask itself, the flask was then sealed at the top. And the way that they opened the flask was by breaking that long neck to allow the uh, contents of the flask to be used accordingly. Many scholars, Jewish specifically, believe that this was nard that she was bringing to Jesus. And if the alabaster, the flask was as big as they normally would have been, this would have been worth 300 denarii in that culture, which is one year's wages. Now, why would someone like this woman have an alabaster flask of ointment worth that amount of money? Many speculate, I'm going to throw this out there because I think it's fascinating, Jewish historians speculate that she, being a prostitute, was waiting for her day of deliverance. That this alabaster flask would indicate the moment that she left that life to become part of the the citizenry uh, and uh, part of the respected citizenry, or at the time of her death when she could finally leave that lifestyle behind. That ointment would indicate the moment that she left her old life and became new. I think that's interesting in the context of everything that we're seeing here. That if that's the case, her bringing this alabaster flask to Jesus would indicate that she saw this as a new beginning in her life. Now that's interesting, isn't it? And as she came in and Jesus was reclining at the table, having this flask of ointment with her, she stood behind him because undoubtedly uh, she couldn't get to his head. Uh, His feet were in front of her and his body was laying towards the table. So she had um, access to his feet and she was weeping and she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head, and kiss them, or smothered them with kisses, that is his feet, and anoint them. Now to use this oil, not on the head of the individual that she is honoring, but of the feet is very significant. It is showing complete submission and humility. But all of these actions roll into the... um, the idea of complete and utter gratitude. Something transpired before this event that she is now expressing her gratitude for. Now, 
To ascertain what possibly had taken place, we use the help of what's called a harmonized gospel. It is when all four gospels are laid out in a linear line and used in consecutive order to give us the understanding of what transpired just prior to this that would help us to understand why this woman may be as grateful as she is demonstrating here at this moment. Also, something had taken place that Jesus speaks about at the end of this Taking uh, and then therefore reassuring her of the fact here in this dialogue and therefore indicating that something again transpired prior to this meeting. And I believe that the harmony of the Gospels bring our attention to the book of Matthew, if you will turn there with me, chapter 12. The book of Matthew, chapter 12. Oh, I'm sorry, Matthew 11. I just wanted to see if you were listening. Matthew 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 25. Dr. Daryl Bach, who from Dallas Theological Seminary has done some of the greatest work on the Gospel of Luke and concurs that this is the event that took place prior to this woman's uh, interaction with Jesus, And it's an invitation. And notice the invitation that Jesus offers to her. At this time, Jesus declared, verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your glorious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone who the Son chooses to reveal him, uh, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is an invitation Jesus makes to the people. The people who, following the Mosaic Covenant, would have been required in each and every occasion of their sin to bring a sacrifice to the temple or to the synagogue to be offered on their behalf so the blood of that sacrifice may cover, kofar, temporarily cover the sins of the individual. And Jesus is now saying, come to me for the yoke that I place upon you, the yoke that, the demand for, the, that I have for you concerning your salvation is light in comparison to what you have to do currently under this system that Moses has given you from God. Jesus is saying that you can come to me and I will provide for you the sacrifice needed. This is the understanding that this woman had. And the invitation that she was given, that I believe she responded to, that this was her opportunity for a new beginning in life. This was the opportunity for her to find forgiveness, even in the scenario in which she occupied as a prostitute in that society. This was it. 
This was the opportunity to leave the old and begin the new. And this was the moment that she saw the death of her old life, bringing that alabaster flask to Jesus and now allowing a new life to potentially take place. And so the gratitude that she is now showing Jesus here in Luke 7 appears to be the gratitude of knowing that he himself will provide for her what she cannot provide for herself. But the Pharisees, more concerned with the identity of Jesus than the salvation of this woman, in verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, now if this were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The Pharisees would do almost anything they possibly could do to avoid being defiled by the sins of other individuals. The interaction between a prostitute in that culture and a Pharisee would be uh, absolutely prohibited. In fact, Pharisees didn't even speak to women who were of reputation in that culture on a consistent basis, thinking that some type of impropriety may be deduced or concluded from the conversation in which they are having with her. No concern over her salvation, but more concern with the identity of who Jesus is we see that the religious Pharisees uh, truly show their heart on how critical that they had become, that they are truly now more concerned about Jesus than they are about her. We must be very careful not to become self-righteous and critical of others to the point where we disregard those around us who are in the most need of Jesus. I know that the circumstances in our society is, ca- are, is causing many Christians to become cold, to become bitter, to become critical. We see individuals no longer as individuals who are lost in need of a Savior, but as our enemy is opposed to the purposes that we and the positions that we stand for. We must never lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ still came and died for them also. As infuriating as some of the things that are said and done um, on their behalf, let us understand that we were equally as lost as they were at one time. And if it weren't for the grace of God and the kindness of someone sharing the gospel with us, we would have sealed our own fate also. Let us be understanding. Let us ask God for his sight and his heart towards these things, especially now. Again, I get equally frustrated when I scroll through Twitter or when I watch the news or read the newspaper, etc. I get equally frustrated when I see the debates and arguments on Facebook that are bringing no glory to God whatsoever, but people feel that they're standing up for righteousness by arguing with somebody over social media. I've never quite understood that. But let us be very careful that we do not slip into a pharisaical position when it comes to people who we have deemed 
uh, unworthy possibly of salvation. And I know that's a very strong term for me to use. But sometimes I believe that we disregard people because we feel that they're so far gone, they're so far lost that, oh, even God can't save them. Well, let's have a bigger understanding of who God is and His salvation can save anyone. But the Pharisees were not concerned with her other than the fact that she somehow, some way, have identified for them that Jesus is not in whom He claims to be. So Jesus responds in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, now Simon didn't say this out loud, understand that Jesus perceived this. I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now we would not see the derogatory manner in which Jesus was just addressed by the Pharisee without understanding that language. By calling him a teacher, a simple teacher, he is downgrading Jesus' standings in that society from who he initially possibly considered Jesus to be, a prophet, and so forth. Now he is simply saying a teacher because undoubtedly, if he was a prophet in his, own, in his mind, he would have understood who this woman was. But even though he, he spoke to Jesus in this manner, Jesus now gives him a parable, a very interesting one. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, of whom he canceled the largest debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jewish historians tell us that during the time of Jesus' first coming, Jewish people were heavily indebted to wealthy landowners. We now know that those landowners were Pharisees, and as a result, the Pharisees had the liens on many of the pieces of property around Jerusalem, around Capernaum. They were the ones with the wealth. They were the ones that could buy these pieces of land and then landlord them out. So by Jesus using the situation of debt, they estimated that 35 to 40% of individuals were so heavily indebted at that time that the slightest misgiving, the slightest weather change, the slightest uh, fluctuation in the economic standards of that time, uh, the, the slightest inconvenience, the slightest uh, decay of the crops would have been detrimental to the economy and therefore pushed these 35 to 40% of individuals into bankruptcy. And the only way to alleviate this bankruptcy would be to be forgiven of this debt. Many believe that Jesus Christ not only was trying to illustrate a point here, but also speak to the heart of the Pharisees of the unrighteousness that they carry in their own lives landlording the, the property over the people like they had, charging exorbitant amounts of money, and truly being able to forgive individuals of those debts, but unwilling to do so. So as a result, Jesus uses this beautiful illustration to show Simon that the one forgiven the most would be the one who loved the most. 
showing that this woman truly understood who she was and her sins before God, where he is clueless and has no idea of his sins before God. She understood the weight that was removed from her personal life at this moment, coming to Christ for the provision of salvation that she could not provide for herself. It was Jesus who said, this act of adoration that you saw taking place before you, this sinner in whom you want to just simply throw to the wayside and to discard, she is demonstrating this great love because of what has transpired in her life, for she has come to know the forgiveness of God. That's what's taking place here before us. And as a result, she loves much. And out of that Uh, forgiveness out of that she demonstrates this love by doing what she has just done before them all and in verse 44 then turning towards the woman he said to simon do you see this woman i entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she wet them with her tears and wiped them with her hair You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Let us be clear for a moment that it wasn't her actions that merited the forgiveness of her sins. It wasn't the fact that uh, she anointed Jesus with the oil or kissed his feet or wiped his feet with with her tears and her hair. For all of this was done simply out of the gratitude and the realization that her sins have been forgiven. For Jesus clearly articulates in verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Not works, but faith. Her faith in Jesus. Faith in what? Faith in the statement in which he made earlier that's recorded in Matthew 11. That all who come to him and are burdened under a heavy heavy laden, they shall experience rest in him. And they shall know and experience forgiveness. All that she has done is because she has been forgiven. And Jesus is simply reiterating. He is confirming for her. You have been forgiven by the forgiveness in which God offers to us. And that forgiveness is the blotting out of the transgressions of your sins before God and to be remembered no more. Telling her that this is where your new life begins. You are not the same woman who came in earlier. You are different. You are changed. You are forgiven. And know that forgiveness understand that forgiveness and allow that forgiveness to create peace within your heart and mind. When I was a kid, I 
was one of those kids who had a very strong conscience. That I couldn't do anything wrong without my conscience violating me in the sense of keeping me up at night, ringing like a bell, constantly uh, nagging me to correct whatever I had done wrong. I, I told you about baseball card gate, you know, um, me stealing those baseball cards from the drugstore with my father. And as they were in my pocket driving home in the backseat of my dad's car, they were like kryptonite to Superman, and I just needed to get rid of them. I couldn't have them in my pocket any longer, so as soon as my dad pulled the car into our driveway, I confessed to him what I had done. He threw me back into the car. We went back to the drugstore. I went back to the owner of the drugstore, confessed to him what I, should ha- what I had done and so forth, and didn't feel alleviated until I had gotten right for what I had done wrong. I don't know why my conscience was that strong. Even when I was in high school, when I would, I had a difficult time with anger, as many of you know. And when that anger would manifest itself and I hurt someone as a manifestation of that anger, I would feel so bad inside. I say this because when I came to Christ, I felt the, just God alleviating me of the weight of guilt that was upon my heart before Him. I knew that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. I knew that my sins were eventually going to cause me great distress in my personal life. I knew that my lifestyle eventually was going to catch up with me and was going to cause great havoc in my personal life as it did for three out of the five best friends that I had growing up have already had time in prison. One for drugs, one for rape, and one for armed robbery. The gentleman who committed the armed robbery, though, didn't have a weapon. He actually had a banana in his jacket and threatened the 7-Eleven owner. Now, I didn't say my friends were bright, Um, but because the the owner of the 7-Eleven didn't know that it wasn't a gun, he still got charged with armed robbery and, and went to jail for it. I remember sitting on my dad's couch after becoming saved and learning about the Lord, reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and for the very first time in my life, I felt clean. I felt forgiven. I didn't have anything weighing on my conscience any longer, any wrongdoing. It was amazing to me. I, I, I'll never forget that feeling, that free, that clean. I can only imagine how she felt. For her whole life, she had been exiled, just used by men one after another, simply reduced to the number of coins left there after services had been provided, shunned by the other women of that society. The religious leaders wouldn't even talk to her, and they were supposed to represent God to her. And yet this one, this 30-year-old carpenter son who's done all these incredible things, who invited me to come and to cast my cares upon him I, and, and, and to take his burden because it is light and find new life in him. 
it seemed probably to her too good to be true. And then to hear those words out of his mouth, your sins are forgiven. Oh, and I know that they are many. And the word in the Greek is there are many on top of many. They are abundant. They are forgiven. One of the aspects of God's forgiveness is this. I believe that God can forgive any sin that we ever commit, except one. The sin I believe that He cannot forgive is our rejection of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only sin that cannot be forgiven. Because it's the only manner in which one can be saved. And if one dies apart from Christ, there is no avenue of salvation provided for that individual. There is no second chance. There is no opportunity. There is no other way for that individual to experience salvation. But any sin that an individual commits here in this earth can be forgiven by God. Seeing that here in this woman's life, seeing the manner in which she responded, seeing the adoration and the love that swollen uh, from her heart and just overflowed upon his feet through her tears, her hair, and through the ointment in which she blessed him with. To hear the reassuring words that her sins are forgiven. This is God saying they are dealt with, or and more specifically, they are going to be dealt with. Because Jesus knew that in less than a year and a half, he would be going to the cross for the sins of this individual and the sins of you and I. And notice verse 49. That those who are at the table who were with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And yet he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word peace there, very interesting. The word peace there means that it indicates that there was something taking place in the mind and the heart of this woman prior to this event. Meaning that this peace is replacing an anguish, an anxiety, a fear, a condemnation that she has within her heart. This peace is indicating that now she has peace with God and that peace is separate from the peace that the world is able to provide and now is He is providing a peace for her that won't be subsided by the circumstances of this world. This peace is what she had been longing for and looking for and I wonder how she felt that night. Was she even able to sleep? Or did she sleep for the very first time without a care in the world upon her heart and her mind? Did she just sit there and think, oh my, what has just happened? And then to consider this, that this was the God of all the universe reaching out to someone like her. That's amazing to me. That in all of the individuals in whom God interacts with, this lowly individual that society has completely ostracized is the one that experiences Jesus in a glorious and a dynamic 
way. And this peace is the peace that now occupies her heart and in her mind. To know the forgiveness of God is to allow the peace of God to reign within your heart. But let us be honest with ourselves. And if I could have all of your attention now at this moment, I would like it, please. We have diminished the seriousness of sin in our society and in our culture to a point where I don't even think we take it seriously any longer. In fact, we humorously laugh at sin. Gross sin. The sin of our own lives, the sin of others. Sometimes we are so pharisaical that the sins that we commit ourselves, when we see them manifested in the lives of others, we become utterly critical of them because our sins look so much worse on someone else other than ourselves. But let me remind you of this. That if Jesus Christ was speaking those words of invitation that he spoke in Matthew chapter 11, in a society that knew that each and every time sin had occurred, a covering needed to take place, an animal needed to be sacrificed, that before the individual's eyes they would see a priest slaughter an animal that had become dear to the family, They would see that that animal would suffer and die on their behalf and that blood only temporarily covering their sins for a moment. Each and every time I believe that my mind and my heart is becoming desensitized to the reality of the seriousness of sin before God, I remember this. The manner in which Christ was slaughtered to atone for the sins of my life. The brutality that he experienced, the cat of nine tails, the crown of thorns, the parading of the cross down the Via Della Rosa in Israel, the hanging between two thieves on a cross, uh, scarred and mutilated in the manner in which he was, that was what was required to atone for the sins of my life. Now, some would may say to themselves, well, Jesus had to do that for the sins of the entire world. That's what was required for Jesus to uh, cover the sins of the entire world, not just mine. Well, let me say it to you this way, as bluntly as I possibly can. If your sins were the only one there in question, Jesus would have to do the exact same thing that he did for everyone. If your sins were the only ones that needed to be atoned for, he would have to experience everything that he personally experienced to atone for those sins. So when he was being beaten with a cat of nine tails 39 times, it was for your sin. When he was crowned with that crown of thorns that pierced his head, that was for your sins. When he hung between two thieves on the cross and was ridiculed in the manner in which he was and brutalized in the manner in which he was. That was for your sins. Let us not believe that if Jesus had only atoned for my sins that he would probably just have to suffer a paper cut. Let's get past that. And let's remember the fact that this is what Jesus Christ needed to do to atone for the sins of man. 
I personally am going to confess something to you. I got sick the first time I watched The Passion of the Christ. Because I knew that that's what Jesus Christ had to go through for me. I couldn't even finish watching it. Because I knew that that's what Jesus had to do for me. To allow me to have new life in Him. To bear His yoke, which is light. To experience salvation through grace, or by grace through faith. Uh, in and through him. This is what Jesus Christ had to do for me. So each and every time that I find myself slipping and considering sin to be uh, uh, less serious than it actually is before God, let us remember all that Christ had to do to remedy the sin of mankind. And that way, when he says, you are forgiven, doesn't a gratitude well up in you like never before? I don't even have hair, but I would still try to cleanse his feet with what I did have. You know, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Because I can't believe what he did. He took a penalty for me. He became the propitiations of my sin. He paid uh, God the Father what I could never pay on my own behalf. And even when Satan, when I make a mistake and, and, and I stumble and fall and I sin after even receiving the salvation that Christ has provided for me because I'm a work in progress and Satan begins to yell and to accuse me before the Father, see, see, he sinned again, Lord. He's sinned before you, God. He has no right to be in your presence. And that's absolutely true. But that's when Jesus steps in. And he walks in and he pushes me behind him with his nail-scarred hands. As Revelation 5 tells us, we will view him as a lamb who had been given on to the slaughter. He will stand before God the Father undoubtedly with the scars that have been required to save me and say, Father, he is mine. And the Father will look at Satan no longer. That's an incredible thing. To know the forgiveness of God. I'd like to read two verses in closing with you this, this morning. Because I think they are two verses that we need to truly appreciate before the Lord. The first one is found in Isaiah 43, 25. Let me just read them to you. Just listen to these words. For God says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance and let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proven right. For I, will remember your sins no more. Or the psalmist, when he writes so beautifully in Psalm 103, starting in verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repays us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love towards those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. If you're struggling this morning, let me encourage you this morning that in Christ your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. When we sin as believers, we don't lose our salvation. We don't isolate or exile ourselves from God, but we do cut off that intimacy with Him, that that closeness with him and this is why John invites us in 1 John 1 9 that he who confesses his sins God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness God wants us to be intimately close with him through Christ this is what God's desire is And if we continue to walk in a life of condemnation because of our sin, then we don't enjoy what God has in store for us. We don't enjoy the relationship that God desires with us. So this morning I tell you that God remembers your sins no more. So confess. Ask for that forgiveness. Cry out to Him and allow Him to cover your heart and mind with the peace that only He can provide.